Welcome to Final Girl Friday. My name is Molly, and I like scary movies. All this month leading up to Halloween, I've been watching as many haunted attraction horror films as possible, and tonight, continuing that haunt horror gauntlet, or hauntlet, if you will, or even if you won't, I'm still going to call it that, we'll be taking a look at what I think is an underrated gem, Dark Ride, from 2006. Bleedings from Asbury Park, the Jersey Shore's infamous historic attraction. 25 of the most terrifying rooms for your horrific pleasure. The Dark Ride celebrates its grand reopening April 17th. This movie has everything I look for in a 21st century slasher, which is to say that it feels like a 20th century slasher, and I've been dying to talk about it. But before we can get into it, I do have a couple of quick points of interest. Firstly, the new Terror Train was released on 2B a couple of days ago, and despite my better judgment, I watched it. I did not like it. <laughs> I hate to lead with a negative, you know? I... I just, I, it's been on my mind. I was impressed by the last 10 minutes or so. They pulled a Todd Farmer and shook things up at the end in a way that was admittedly a little exciting. And we got some nice last minute performances from a couple of the actors, but the first hour and 20 minutes feels like a high school stage adaptation of the original, which is cute. I guess, but like, if your kid isn't in the play, why would you want to sit through that? <laughs> they made some odd changes, like Elena's name is now pronounced Alana for some reason, and Ed's Groucho Marx mask, such an iconic visual from the original film, is now just a generic clown. They also changed hand pants. Ed's girlfriend, who was wearing like the giant trousers up over her breasts, and she had like the big plastic hand sticking up out of her cleavage. Nobody knows what the fuck she was supposed to be, but it was glorious. They changed that. Her her costume is now like a fairy uh, or something. So they made a few changes like that and then modernizations with the language and then of course they added cell phones. They get no reception on the train so they can't use them but you know the cell phones are there so I guess it's more relatable. <laughs> for the youth. But with the exception of those last 10 minutes, they changed almost nothing about the story. It's practically a beat-for-beat beat remake. I love you, and no matter what, we are best friends for life. Even if I marry Doc one day. Even if you lose your mind and marry Doc. <laughs> I just have a difficult time discerning who these movies are for. You know, My Bloody Valentine from 09, Poltergeist from 2015, This Terror Train. I They're not for me. They're not for diehard fans of the original. But there's a lot of content in them that isn't really meant for a new audience either. There's a lot of referential stuff. They follow that original story so closely. And then mixing it up at the end subverts only the expectations of the people who've seen the first one. So it's just... It's confusing. I'm confused. <laughs> Maybe it was a rights thing. I, I haven't looked that deeply into it. If you're interested in seeing a different cast perform Terror Train almost exactly as it was written initially, I would have to recommend this, I guess. You might enjoy it. I, for one, will not be adding the new Terror Train to my permanent collection. Moving on to the positive, though. Happy early birthday to John Carpenter's Prince of Darkness. It turns 35 years old tomorrow. We had a responsibility to warn the rest of the world. Only the corrupt I listen to now. They tell us what we want to hear. 
I watched Prince of Darkness for the first time in a very long time with Rory a few months back, and I was blown away by it. I had forgotten just how epic a movie it is, um, and it really holds up. The theme, the music, the special effects, the performances, it's a lot more timeless than I would have imagined. It also features one of my favorite Donald Pleasant's performances, that's for sure. Megan Navarro at Bloody Disgusting wrote a great editorial about the film recently entitled This Is Not a Dream, wherein she says, what stands out the most about Prince of Darkness is how Carpenter created a world where logic is reversed and reality loses all meaning. It's not academia and spirituality that saves the world, at least this time, but instinct and perhaps even love. There's hefty weight and cosmic dread behind its deceptive simplicity. Which I think that was just beautifully worded. The whole, the whole editorial is really nice. It makes me want to go back and watch it again tomorrow. Or hell, the whole Apocalypse trilogy, actually. It's been a while since I've seen In the Mouth of Madness as well. There's been a lot of upcoming movie news cropping up recently. Christopher Gons is directing a new Silent Hill movie. A fourth Conjuring film is officially underway. And we're apparently getting a sequel to Twister, which is hilarious and also sad because it reminded me that Bill Paxton and Philip Seymour Hoffman are no longer with us. But Helen Hunt is still around and the story is said to focus on the daughter that she had with Paxton's character. I didn't know I wanted a sequel to Twister, but now I, I kind of want a sequel to Twister. The suck zone. It's the point, basically, at which the Twister sucks you up. I mean, that's not the technical term for it, obviously, but... Lastly, for a little recommended reading, over at horrornews.net, Todd Martin made me so fucking proud with his list of 15 underrated slasher movies. At number one, which is exactly where it belongs, is Scott Spiegel's Intruder. The list also includes Slaughter High, Cutting Class, Curtains, and Dr. Giggles, among others. I'm also grateful to him for posting this list, as the first item on it is a movie called Haunted Ween from 1991, which I had never heard of, but it's apparently about a group of college kids that reopen an old haunted house, so I have another movie to add to the hauntlet that wasn't cropping up on any of my searches. So thank you, Todd. All right, I think that's all I've got for tonight. So without further ado, it's time to dive into the movie. If you're new to this podcast and you don't hate it, stay tuned until the end of this episode for information on Final Girl Friday elsewhere. And as usual, if you haven't seen Dark Ride from 2006, proceed with caution. There will be many spoilers ahead. Hey guys, editing Molly here. When I recorded this review, it was an intensely windy day here in Omaha. Pretty much all day, there were piles of leaves and branches and just wind in general slamming up against my uh, my windows. And I did my best to reduce it in the recording, but it was impossible to get it all. So you're going to hear some periodic rattling and clanking and shit, and I apologize for that. Or maybe, who knows, maybe it'll create some mid-October atmosphere. <laughs> Either way, back to the show. All right, Dark Ride. Written and directed by Craig Singer, co-written by Robert Klein, released in November of 2006. It stars Jamie Lynn Sigler as Kathy, the film's final girl, Patrick Renna of The Sandlot as her friend and co-conspirator Bill, and Dave Warden as Jonah, an escaped asylum inmate in a baby mask who likes to use people as props. Kathy, Bill, and three of their friends, well, two of their friends and Kathy's ex-boyfriend who she's really mad at, head down to Louisiana for a break from college, detouring 
traveling along the way to Asbury Park, New Jersey, to spend the night at a defunct dark ride that was shut down after a series of brutal murders. At the same time that they're heading to the dark ride, Jonah, the man responsible for the murders, escapes the asylum he's in and heads to the ride as well. Once the kids are there, Kathy and Bill play a prank on the aforementioned ex, Steve, making him think that Kathy's been killed as revenge for being unfaithful to her. Steve gets pissed and tries to leave, but Jonah turns him into a part of the ride instead and quickly begins picking the group off one by one. This movie isn't very well liked. It's got a 29% audience score on Rotten Tomatoes. It's sitting at a little less than 5 out of 10 stars on IMDb. And that makes me sad because I think it's fucking great. <laughs> I have a few issues with it, and I'll get to those. It's not a masterpiece, but it's a fun popcorn flick that gets more flack than it deserves, in my opinion. Before I go any further, I want to quickly dispel this bizarre myth that's floating around about the movie for some reason. People think Dark Ride is a remake of Toby Hooper's The Fun House from 1981. It even says that on its IMDb page. I have no idea who put that there or where they got that idea, but it's not a remake of The Fun House. Singer even talked about that in uh, the director's commentary for the film. He, he said that he wasn't even thinking about the funhouse when he made the film, and I buy that. There are a lot of little Easter eggs and just references in general to horror movies that he and, and uh, producer Chris Williams and their friends loved. I feel like there would have been no reason for him not to make a direct reference to the funhouse if that was a direct inspiration, because he did, he made direct references to a lot of other films. And I mean, yeah, both films are set inside amusement park attractions, and the killers in both films are grown men with like childlike mentalities, but that's pretty much where the similarities end. A common complaint about Dark Ride is that it feels like every other slasher movie that came before it, which does include the funhouse, and I mean, that's valid. It's, it's a valid criticism. But for me personally, formulaic slasher movies are my eternal jam. So the film's predictable nature and laundry list of subgenre cliches are actually pros for me, not cons. See, in the end, the taxpayers prevail. The ride was closed. And the monster expired. <laughs> <laughs> Who's got the weed? Basically, every slasher trope you can think of exists in Dark Ride. You've got your traditional slasher archetypes, the morally superior final girl, her promiscuous best friend, her conventionally handsome boyfriend, who's also kind of a dick, the stoner, the nerd, a masked silent killer, and, um... Well, Jen. I'm not really sure where Jen falls on the archetype spectrum. She's somewhere between the hitchhiker from the original Texas Chainsaw and Tina from The Final Girls. It's a weird combo. In addition to the archetypes, you have a nice long scene where the kids are all sitting around in a big exposition circle, arguing over the details of the legend of Jonah and the ride. We've got sex, drugs, uh, a creepy gas station attendant, bumbling cops that show up and do pretty much fuck all. It just, it feels like a bunch of people who love slash movies convened and threw one together over a long weekend. Singer and uh, several other members of the crew, including producer Chris Williams, they had been friends for a long time. And I think this was um, like the fourth film that they had made together. And it was a passion project for them. They fought tooth and nail to keep the effects practical. They pushed the limits with the MPAA as far as they could go. They filmed in hazardous conditions with very little money, and they were proud of what they made. I first saw Dark Ride uh, around the same time last year, I want to say. And I liked it then. I thought it was cute. Like I said, it was a fun little popcorn flick, very fitting for Halloween. But it's one of those movies that I like a little bit more on every rewatch. Part of that has to do with the cast. This is a movie where you can tell that everyone involved was having a good time. And most of the characters are 
are fun and interesting. Even the twin girls at the beginning of the film, the movie starts out with a pair of identical twins who go to the dark ride in 1989. They're murdered by Jonah, and that's our prologue. And even those twins seem like they're having a blast, like for what little screen time they have. And there was a lot of thought put into their characters as well. I like that although they were inspired by the Grady twins, they feel more like young versions of the Doublemint twins from the final chapter in that they have very different personalities. It makes for an entertaining opening where I actually actually care about these kids, especially Colleen, the more innocent one. I was sad that she died. I wanted her to make it out of there. And they, I mean, they're really only on screen for like less than 10 minutes. That was something Craig Singer was adamant about. And maybe this is the number one reason I like this movie so much. Singer understood the thing that I'm constantly wailing about, which is that the more you get to know the victims, the bigger the impact of their deaths. The main cast doesn't even get to the dark ride until like a half an hour into the film. And the sitting around revealing details about the legend happens about an hour in. And while there are plenty of what they call cat scares leading up to the third act, there's a palpable shift from second to third where most of the blatant horror is. And I really like that because by the time we get there, I have a couple of favorite characters. I have ones that I'm rooting for and I'm in, I'm invested. Not surprisingly, the filmmakers had to fight with the studio for the freedom to take their time. And I'm so glad they stuck to their guns because I think that's one of the film's greatest strengths. You know, it doesn't have a huge budget. It's not reinventing the wheel for the subgenre. It's a it's a very predictable film. I'd go so far as to say that if you've seen like two slasher movies in your life, you can probably predict most of the major plot points of the movie. So I think it was important for them to have solid characters to keep you invested, to keep you watching. It's also really nice to see Patrick Renna. You know, I watched Sandlot so many times as a kid, I kind of feel like I grew up with him. I think a lot of people of my generation probably feel that way. Hopefully I'm not alone in that. And, you know, I don't see him in much. So on the rare occasion that I do see him in a movie, this may sound a little cheesy, but it's kind of like running into an old friend. And in this case, his character is a cinephile. So it's like running into an old friend and finding out you still have something in common after all this time. My favorite character, though, is Jim, played by Alex Solowitz. This is almost as good as the old man at the gas station. I bet she's either a psycho or an info. Well, what is she doing out here all by herself? Almost psychotic nymphomaniac. Where's she gonna be? Park Avenue? He has that certain something. It's like if Mike from Chopping Mall and Chewy from the Friday remake had a baby, and then that baby dressed up as Jake Busey for Halloween. Every word out of his mouth cracks me up. I love his timing. I love his delivery. And I get such a kick out of his life. It's such a roller coaster. I feel like Jim's story is the least predictable. He's the resident stoner, the primary source of comic relief. He's got Die's second written all over him, but he lives so long. He lives longer than almost anyone else in the film. On my first watch, I found myself wondering beyond a certain point, like if he was going to turn out to be a final boy and that was going to be kind of the big subversion of expectations. And I got so fucking excited for that. I mean, I may be obsessed with the final girl trope, but I love I love a good final boy, and I felt like Jim had earned it. He is also the unwitting participant in the best death of the movie, when Jen the Hitchhiker is decapitated while going down on him. It isn't quite the doggy-style decap from Hatchet 2, but it's in the same family, and it fucking slays me. Also, as a side note, Alex Solowitz is a really good singer. The one character that doesn't really work for me, and I feel awful saying this, but I am not a fan of the killer in Dark Ride, of Jonah. It's like they were trying to do two very conflicting things with Jonah, and both versions of him 
suffered for that. On one hand, Singer described Jonah as the shark from Jaws. He knows the ride like the back of his hand. He's like a machine. He says nothing, moves quietly, kills, and moves on. And when it comes to physicality, that's the Jonah we see throughout the whole film. He's a huge dude. He's like 6'6", and he's skulking around. He has this very predatory body language. But on the other hand, Jonah also has this sort of tragic backstory where he was raised in the dark ride. He has this mental disability, and he would kill people to turn them into props, mimicking the ones he saw in the ride, believing he was entertaining people. And that, that to me, suggests a certain level of softness, of innocence. It evokes sympathy or it wants to, but it's totally undone by Jonah's physical presence. It's kind of like Gunnar Hansen versus Andrew Reniarski with Leatherface. Gunnar played Leatherface as a childlike psychopath. He was clumsy and reactionary. He was very human. Whereas Reniarski played him more calmly. He was a monster on a mission, which hints at a certain degree of maturity. If we look at Leatherface as he's almost always been written, which is as a grown man with the mind of a child who kills people mostly because his family kills people, and it's what he was raised to do, Gunnar Hansen's version of Leatherface makes a lot more sense to me. The same is true here of Jonah. If he's supposed to be a kid in a man's body, killing because he thinks people want him to, he shouldn't be moving around like the shark from Jaws 100% of the time. That's all I'm saying. I also never picked up on the fact that he was trying to arrange the bodies to mimic the elements of the ride. The only reason I know that that's what they were going for is because they talked about it in the behind the scenes and on the commentary. It never came across to me that way. I don't know if maybe I was just a little dense to it or maybe they didn't lean hard enough in that direction. I don't know. But yeah, just the backstory just never quite clicked for me. But apart from that, I'm a fan of all of the characters, even Jen, who is such a cringy fucking character. <laughs> Andrea Bogart is so charming. And again, you could tell she was having a blast playing Jen. But uh, she she was a hot mess of a character, man. And her monologue in the van, I have to skip it now. I can't sit through it. It is so cringe. It's like when you go back and read poetry you wrote in the seventh grade. It's that same kind of physical feeling watching her deliver that monologue in the van. <laughs> I have to just shove it back into the notebook and pretend it doesn't exist. So what I did was, what I did was... I just leaned over and I smashed down really hard in a really sensitive place. Are you feeling me? My aim was dead on. Ding dong. I rang the bell and won the Cupid out, man. In addition to the fun character work, another thing that makes this such a great watch, especially around this time of year, is the set design. Well, the production design in general. All of the interior stuff of the dark ride was shot inside the facades at Universal Studios. So you had like, you know, the New York City streets and the Hunchback of Notre Dame set, the Wild West, you know, all the guts behind those facades. They were these cramped, lumber-filled areas that were never meant to be filmed in. And it really was the perfect location. I mean, as an audience member, it's perfect. I'm sure it sucked to film in there sometimes. But the interior shots of the ride, they're very claustrophobic, these narrow industrial walkways and super high ceilings. It's easy to create the illusion of a large, very real dark ride. And there was a lot of potential for creative camera work in those spaces, which they took full advantage of. I, I really like Vincent Toto's cinematography. It's, it's good. And the set pieces as well, the props were fantastic. Apparently, a lot of them were taken from the Playboy Mansion. I guess they have a haunted house at the Playboy Mansion every year, which, you know, every once in a while it just, it hits me that there are so many little worlds out there just turning, doing their thing that I am completely unaware of. My favorite thing about this movie, like my favorite aspect of it, is actually the lighting. And I don't know 
if I've ever felt that way about a film before. I, I don't normally, I mean, I notice the lighting, but it's never like the thing I notice. But I think the lighting in Dark Ride is pretty much perfect. This could have easily been like a Slenderman situation where they overcompensate, they go too far with the darkness or not far enough, but it was it was just right. And I was surprised that there weren't more strobe lights. There are some, of course, so photosensitive people should still take caution when watching, but for an early 2000s horror movie set in a haunted attraction, I expected a lot more flashing lights. They were used very tastefully. I think the sound design could have used a little work, but that that tends to be the thing that suffers most from budgetary constraints for some reason. I don't know enough about the technical side of filmmaking to know why audio is typically one of the biggest indicators of the budget. To any of my filmmaker friends, do you have any insight into this? Because I'm curious. That being said, the score is awesome. The themes for the movie were written by Christopher Young, who, if you're not familiar with him by name, you've definitely heard his work. He scored several Hellraiser films, including the first one in 87, Tales from the Hood, The Grudge, Drag Me to Hell, Sinister. He's a big deal in the realm of horror music, and they knew that. I love the story of how they got him. Craig Singer and Chris Williams were shopping around for a backup composer. They were having contract issues with the composer they had on board. And uh, The Grudge had come out just a couple of years earlier. They remembered really liking that score, so they looked into who had done it. And when they realized it was Christopher Young, they were like, ah, fuck. We're never going to get him to work with us. He's way too big a deal. But then when they were looking at his IMDb page, they noticed his birthplace, which was Asbury Park, New Jersey, which is where Singer and Williams were from and and where the film was set. And that was enough to give them the push they needed to just take a shot and ask. And it was good that they did because he said yes. And it's just it's just great. The whole score has such a timeless, creepy carnival feel to it. As far as the effects are concerned, I enjoy the kills in the movie, especially the blowjob decapitation. It's just it's fucking hilarious. I don't have the most crass sense of humor in the world, but something about sexual absurdism mixed with brutal horror just really fucking gets me. We also see a guy split in half, which is always fun. As I mentioned earlier, they used almost no CG. I think there was only one moment in the movie where they used CG, and it's hard to spot, and I don't even remember what it was currently. <laughs> I guess I didn't make a note of it either. Singer was steadfast about keeping the effects practical, which I deeply appreciate. Again, it also lends a timeless quality, a classic quality to this movie. And it's a bloody, gory mess, but the kills aren't hyper-realistic. There's a campy quality to them, which those are precisely the kills that I personally look for. When it comes to horror effects, I'll take Stuart Gordon over Eli Roth any day of the week. Where I start to run into some problems with Dark Ride, and I've, I've kind of alluded to this already, but it's the story. I do like the pacing of the film. Anyone making a slasher movie, especially in our modern age, who is brave enough and cool enough to prioritize character development over kills is worthy of praise. But the mythology is a little muddled. There are a few little setups that don't really go anywhere, and as previously mentioned, we have a killer and a backstory for the killer that just does not work for me. Why does it always have to be Jonah? Or Jason? Or Jedediah? I mean, why can't it be Bob? The main issue I have is really to do with one sequence relating to Jonah that was added kind of at the last minute at the behest of the studio. It's the asylum sequence where you have a couple of orderlies, one of whom is abusing Jonah and he kills them and escapes. It wasn't in the original script for good reason, but they needed to add what they called a page 25 scare because the studio thought they were spending too much time on the characters. And what happens in that asylum raises a handful of questions within the story that then go unanswered. Firstly, Jonah was meant to be a cannibal. The opening scene was originally supposed to show him eating the intestines of one of the twins, but that was cut out because 
you know, 12-year-old girls being eaten by cannibals. Not a big commercial sell in America. So we learn about his cannibalism at the asylum. And it's this cartoonish asylum. The orderly that's abusing him is just obnoxiously antagonistic. It's so over the top. He decides for some reason to feed Jonah meat, even though he's supposed to be on a vegetarian diet, because if a cannibal isn't allowed to eat cows, he won't want to eat humans anymore, I guess. But he feeds him the meat. And then that somehow imbues Jonah with like super psycho strength, which is what allows him to rip the stomach out of one of the orderlies, kill the other one and, and escape. And then the cannibalism thing is just never brought up again. It's just like this brief foray into a dreamland where we learn this completely insignificant detail about Jonah. He dips out and then we're back to the movie. It just feels very out of place with the rest of the film. Also, as another side note, I looked tirelessly for information regarding cures for cannibalism, trying to figure out how we actually treat cannibals psychiatrically, at least you know, here in the United States. And I came up with nothing. I guess our method of dealing with cannibals is just to jail and execute them. But I wonder if putting them on a vegetarian diet is really something we would do. Does anyone know if Jeffrey Dahmer was allowed to eat meat in prison? <laughs> Asking for a friend. Jonah's escape from the asylum also creates a bit of a plot hole in relation to Bill. Did he know? Because I'm guessing that Jonah didn't call him from inside the dark ride and be like, hey, I'm home, bro. And then Bill only kills one person at the ride that we know of. Jonah does most of the killing. So, like, what was Bill's plan if Jonah wasn't there? Did he realize Jonah was there after they got there and kind of change his plans? Or was he always going to kill them? And if so, to what end? Also, backtracking a little bit to Bill being a cinephile. I like that, but it doesn't really serve a purpose. They sort of fade that aspect of Bill's personality out once things start to amp up in the dark ride. And by the big reveal at the end, when we learn that he's Jonah's brother, his obsession with movies is just, it's gone completely. And then there's the giant problem at the very end, which is that Bill lets Kathy leave. It's just sloppy murder on Bill's part and it bugs me. I'm also not wild about Kathy. She's had to grow on me more than most, which isn't a comment on Sigler's performance, I don't think. There's just something... There's a piece missing from Kathy's personality for me. She does have a solid arc for a final girl. She starts out as the woman scorned and co-conspirator with Bill, and then her boyfriend dies. She has a complete meltdown, which is a great scene, by the way. She runs away and then chooses to come back and be the hero. That's a nice, solid, respectable arc. But I just, I don't find myself rooting for her the way I do the others. And then there's the matter of those little details uh, that I mentioned, like the cannibalism, that seem important but never come up again. Like the fact that Liz and Jim drunkenly hooked up one night or the insanity that is Jen's monologue when they first pick her up. It just, it suggests that she's a bit of a psycho herself, but it doesn't really amount to anything. And that's a little unsatisfying. So yeah, the story is a little rough, but all in all, I get a big kick out of Dark Ride. When you combine its formulaic nature with the practical effects, the low budget, the enthusiastic cast, it has a very classic slasher feel. I feel like this is another one that you could just lift right out of 2006 and set it down in the 80s and it would feel right at home. It's funny, it's campy, it's charming. It's perfect for the mood that I've been in this season. I wouldn't necessarily rank it above some of the other haunted attraction movies I've watched in recent weeks, but I get a big kick out of it. There are far worse horror movies out there that were likely made with a lot less love than the cast and crew of this one had for the genre. OK, 
Okay, before we wrap up tonight, I thought it might be fun to pass along some interesting facts about dark rides. Dark rides date all the way back to the late 1800s when they were commonly referred to as old mills or pleasure railways, and they were ridden entirely by boats on small canals. The first mechanical dark ride was A Trip to the Moon, which ran for a few months in Buffalo, New York in 1901 as part of the World's Fair. Admission for the ride was 50 cents, which is roughly $16 today. The carts were designed like airships that carried passengers to a paper mache moon, which they could get out and walk around on. They could visit the palace of the man in the moon, and when they left, they left through a cow's mouth. It sounds fucking amazing, and I suddenly hate that I wasn't a kid in 1901. The largest dark ride in the world is located at Blackpool Pleasure Beach in Lancashire, England. It's called Valhalla, based on Valhalla of Norse mythology, where riders board a Viking-style longship and travel through 16 different rooms over a period of around six minutes. The ride features dramatic temperature changes, multiple fire effects like lightning and explosions, a dragon, and it houses so much water for its ice rooms and giant waterfall that when a fire broke out at Pleasure Beach in 2004, Valhalla's water reserve was what they used to put it out. Obviously, fear is subjective, but a lot of people agree that Fata Morgana in the Netherlands is the scariest dark ride operating today. And on paper, it doesn't sound like it would be. It's themed after A Thousand and One Arabian Nights, and it takes you from the jungle through the city surrounding the Pasha's palace to the treasure room beneath it, where a giant guards the Sultan's treasure, and then back to the jungle again. But if you go to Efteling.com or just look up Fata Morgana on YouTube, you can watch a full on-ride video that shows just how immersive it is. I can definitely understand why so many people find it terrifying. And uh, I don't know if anyone will find this particular fact interesting, but my first dark ride experience was the Smurfs Enchanted Voyage at Kings Island in Ohio. This was back in the late 80s before it was bought by Paramount. It was entirely water-based and the Gargamel portion of the ride, which had like lightning and really, you know, epic orchestral ominous music, it gave me nightmares for a very long time. I, I can't stand it anymore! <laughs> I can't! I can't! Thanks so much for hanging out with me tonight, guys, and listening to me ramble about movies and stuff. If you have any fun dark ride facts or memories, or if you have thoughts you'd like to share about Dark Ride from 2006, I would love for you to reach out to me. You can find me on the Slasher app. My username is Final Girl Friday, Instagram at Molly Oblivion, or if you prefer old school correspondence, you can email me at finalgirlconfessions at gmail.com. I also have a Patreon, though I should warn you, I post only very sporadically right now, but I do hope to get back to the Fright and Early Morning Review series over there eventually, so I'm keeping it going for now, but no pressure to pledge at all. As always, I'm just happy you guys are here and listening. I'll be back soon, I hope, talking about Hellfest or The Fun House or, I don't know, maybe even Haunted Ween. I have no idea. Just something haunted attraction-y. I hope you guys have an awesome weekend. Stay safe, stay sane. If you go on any dark rides this week, think of me. And until next time, creep it real. Creep it real.